1: Look at up. Listen, I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become
2: kind of a symbol.
0: Good afternoon, gentle listeners, and welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us on The Wireless this afternoon is Natasha Leonard. Natasha is a writer for The Intercept. She teaches journalism at the New School for Social Research and recently published a collection of essays through Verso called Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life. Thanks for joining us, Natasha.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. Hi.
0: I guess just to begin with, I would like to put an allegation to you. Uh, Michael Tracy recently tweeted: "Someone should probe whether Intercept writer Natasha Leonard has anti-far ties. They might be surprised at what they find. Is this the case? Are you now, or have you ever been an anti-fascist?"
1: Oh, it's it's so shameful to admit that that I have indeed been involved in anti-fascist activities. Um, yeah, I don't know how much listeners know about who Michael Tracy is.
0: Please please enlighten us.
1: Oh, well, he finds himself advocating consistently, it seems, for for the far right and various kind of fascioid constellations over here in the US in the name of, you know, free speech and uh you know going against that the authoritarian grain of the the all-powerful left in America, yeah, I mean, one of one of those guys, and a completely annoying dweeb, also, and kind of nonetheless has a, a pretty significant following. And so when he tweets something, people, you know, the kind of hordes of of far right dweebs who like to congregate in his replies and also on Gab, uh, listen. And obviously, I think Michael Tracy should know that. I'm pretty open in my writing about not just being anti-fascist, because that can sort of be like a meaningless statement, like, oh, I'm anti-fascist, because unless you are, even even fascists don't call themselves fascists these days, for the most part, unless you're Golden Dawn in Greece. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think what he means is specifically that legacy of tactics and certain sorts of organization and strategy that is anti-fa. And because no one's officially anti-fur, of course, I'm not officially anti But, you know, I've written in the past about being in black blocks under that banner, engaging with that kind of activity, respecting a lot of the research that anti-fur activists get engaged in. And my book is literally called Essays on Non-Fascist Life. So I think i had done a pretty good like probe on myself in public, so no one else needed to. But then some of the dweebs in Gab did sort of follow up Tracy and have been attempting quite poorly to dox me and my colleagues at The Intercept. So that is that is that is fun. That's the update.
0: Tracy and people like Glenn Greenwald seem to be quite upset at some of the work that The Intercept has been doing on Gab. Could you tell us a little bit about that and why it's rankled them?
1: Absolutely. So this was a Story that I uh, I wasn't uh, the specific reporting that has got Glenn's uh, underwear in a twist is not a story I worked on, and also because I'm I'm a contract columnist, I'm not like a staffer. You know, I am very clear as an opinion writer, even though The Intercept openly <laughs> aligns itself as an anti-fascist publication, even for the more kind of straight normal not opinion writing reporters, but a couple of staffers. Put together uh, an investigative report, which included a video revealing far right figures, major far right figures, online personalities who had been involved in what they call journalism that had largely been dedicated to, you know, uh, causing problems and exposing people involved in Black Lives Matter activity. So the Intercept reported on these people based on a number of leaks, which involved identifying people involved in this far right faux reporting activity, Um, or we can just call it far-right fascist reporting. Glenn, Mr. Two-Sides absolutist freedom of speech content doesn't matter, politics doesn't matter, thinks this is wildly hypocritical because were anti-fascists or indeed Black Lives Matter activists to be, uh, revealed, uh, if they're major figures, then, then this is, this is monstrous work. The Intercept was very clear that it was only interested in publishing details about public figures. This was not doxing normal, fasci civilians. So that's one thing. But beyond that, it's really striking to me, and this goes far beyond Glenn Greenwald and Michael Tracy, that people treat the kind of anti-fascist versus fascist constellations and groupings as if they're just sort of this matter of taste. And we want this world where the fascists and the anti-fascists can both get along. And I'm like, no, I, I want to not have fascists. So I think it's totally fine to do the work of reporting on revealing and exposing people involved in far right fascist activity and aligning with a politics that's invested in that. I mean, if it were me as an opinion writer and a columnist, unlike my you know uh, dedicated colleagues at The Intercept, I would have gone further and said, look, I don't care about it, exposing the far right and fascists, regardless of whether they're public figures. But in fact, my colleagues played far more by the traditional journalist rulebook. But Glenn, who once again has found himself on the side of the far right, thought this was disgraceful and doing the work of the state, ignoring the fact that the state has shown itself again and again to not be particularly interested in going after white supremacists.
2: More generally, Natasha, in the last few years, when I think of figures like Tracy and uh, Greenwald and a number of others, uh, there's some sense in which they're speaking from an ostensible uh, leftist position or there are leftist critics of uh, anti-fascist, uh, political organizing and action and there seems to be some kind of further conceptual confusion about left-wing approaches not only to the questions of uh, anti-fascism but uh, progressive politics more generally what's your reading of the kind of uh, that kind of uh, i guess the, the flux in ideas in that particular domain and how it reflects on journalism because i'm also reminded of groups like you know project veritas which is also undertaking some kind of journalism, but which has quite uh, explicit political aims.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and you know, people can, you can be politic, you can have a political bent within your journalism. Indeed, everyone does, especially those who claim not to. We find ourselves in a funny kind of, I guess it's a quandary, and I'm still not sure where I kind of all on this, where when you have someone like Glenn, who has a, you know, really, really long history of going above and beyond for the far right, and has done some excellent journalism in support of things that that we might all want defended and exposed. Keep in mind, he never did any of that stuff on his own. You know, the question of are parts of his work, is part of his outlook leftist? Could the same be said for Tracy? Could the same be said for, you know, this huge variety, this huge grouping of nationalists on the left? So you've got, this is not just in the US, you have this in Germany, you have this in Britain, really kind of violently in Germany and the US though, and historically so. People who think that, you know, you have to shut down immigration to help the working class, as if the working class weren't largely constituted by immigrants too, and that labor segmentation help helps capital, it doesn't help any working class. So that aside, we've got a lot of what you might call would we might say, oh, they're they're so-called leftist or self-identifying leftists at times, even though uh, Glenn isn't. But a lot of these nationalists are like Angela Angela Nagel. But, you know, we can either say they're alleged leftists, so-called leftists, or we could admit that actually the left is heterogeneous and it's not always how we want it to be. And there's a long history of the bad, bad aspects of the left. In the same way, when someone is a transphobic person from a history of radical feminism, we can say they're not real feminists, or we can say, actually, some of the uh, politics and Habits and tendencies we really want to hold up have really complicated and really poisonous histories in some ways, and we have to actually reckon with those. So we have to reckon with transphobic feminist turfs um, if we want to remove that from our feminism and the feminism feminisms we want in the world. We have to reckon with the fact that you know there there are leftist forces in many many ways, rightly described as leftist which are pro-border, racist, xenophobic, anti-feminist. So, you know, that those aspects of the left, I don't think we do good analytic work in saying, oh, that's not the left, that's the so-called left. And I find myself doing it sometimes. I'm like, oh, so-called leftists who want, you know, strong immigration controls. But they're not, they're just bad, like they're part of the left and it's a bad part. And so I think we have to reckon with that and it's, it sucks, but we do.
2: One of the other points of controversy in relation to anti-fascist political activism in particular revolves around the question of violence and you have some discussion about this in your book about uh, non-fascist life. Can you talk to why you think violence has uh, emerged as being such a contentious issue and what's your approach to not only the kinds of questions of political strategy and tactics, but in terms of your own reportage? Because I imagine that if you're you know, reporting on these sorts of events and, and uh, these moments, you may have some kinds of uh, conflicting loyalties.
1: Well, I mean, just to, to answer the, the latter question, when I'm reporting, I have to be, you know, fact-based and I am fact checked, but that I don't have to have conflicting loyalties because I'm, you know, an open anti-fascist on the left. And I don't have to compromise on that in any way, given the work I have found myself doing, which is very lucky, obviously. But broadly, in terms of the question of violence, and it is obviously hardly a new question. It's, it's almost, you know, an old canard. But the way I tend to break out break down this question is first of all obviously what what gets called violence when who commits it and what does that tell us about monopolies of violence so a very classic one is oh uh you know the violence of property damage and property destruction and i wouldn't say that property destruction can never be violent and can never be victimless because of course the desecration of a mosque or a synagogue can be indeed a very violent act so it's not just the act of smashing a window or not whether we have to have a referendum on this act is violence this act isn't but you know obviously i don't think that breaking the patina of a shiny bank or Starbucks window should be considered an unacceptable violence as it so often is. And, you know, who does it serve? Whose messaging does it serve when that is so condemned? It segments protest movements. It enables things to continue as normal. I think it should be noted that the, the largest. Uprisings in our generation in the U.S. last summer, following George Floyd's execution, were very, very much catalyzed by the burning down of a police station in Minneapolis. So this kind of mythology, this very liberal mythology of if you start breaking things and there's fire, you will, if, uh, no one will support you, and you will alienate the average person. And we did see a lot of that discourse. But by the same token, the week after that happened, we saw more people on the streets than ever for a. Variety of reasons, but that can't be ignored. That causality in that particular moment, and you know, and you saw sa- similar things in how the kind of civil rights movement has been whitewashed. People talk about the march on Washington, and people talk about Martin Luther King, whose name gets so sullied because it's so whitewashed. When, of course, he very much. Understood the value of the riot, a riot as the voice of the unheard, and that major civil rights legislation would not have happened had there not, as well as very important nonviolent civil disobedience on a mass scale, been riots uh, in cities across the US. I think that's just historically super important. Same if we think about abolition of slavery and, uh, you know, slave revolts and marinage and the Haitian slave revolt. This idea that everyone just kind of Decided, and and Lincoln freed the slaves, and it, it's you know it's it's offensive. It removes agency, and it also misplaces a story of violence and nonviolence. One of the things we see all the time, and I mentioned this in the book, and the press, the media is really guilty of this, is when they talk about demonstrations or protest movements or protest events turning violent, and you'll see this a lot. Like the protest turned violent. Very rarely do you do you see it noted that the, the violence in the moment is often activated by riot cops or just police in general. But that aside, even the idea of an event turning violent is misplaced uh, discursively. Because if you live in a state of affairs, as we do, when black people are executed at a kind of regular clip by cops, there's people dying, people of color dying at rates, uh... Far higher when they are people of color, immigrants stuck at the border, unable to survive, decimation in very disparate ways of our environment, the occupation of Palestine. I could go on. This is a state of violence, and then asking the people who are forced to live under it, who cannot turn from it to stop turning to it it's there's no there's no background state of peace, so calling for peace is such an empty. Thing to do because there is no peace. That it's it's just not a situation available. So if we are going to talk about violence at all, and we talk about oppressed people using what at times is described as violence or you know property destruction, it's often a counter violence, and that's true if anti-fascists punch fascists at a demo. Uh, you know when when Richard Spencer the neo-Nazi got punched. On the day of Trump's inauguration, I celebrated it very publicly, as did a number of people. But I got a lot of um, got got in a bit of trouble for that. Nothing formal, but just you know online. And it seemed absurd to me that like it wasn't understood that a state in which there are Nazis freely organising isn't seen as a state of pre-existing violence. So anything, if we are going to talk about violence, should be framed as counter-violence, and you know judged in terms of strategy and tactics rather than. Pre-drawn lines of non-violent protest equals good, uh, violent protest. However, we choose to decide it, usually along terms that the state has preordained uh, equals bad. It's historically false, and it creates divisions in liberation movements that shouldn't be there, that don't serve those movements, and it's you know the oldest liberal trick in the book. It's you know Martin Luther King complained about the white moderates from his letter in uh, from Birmingham jail, the white moderates who prefer order to justice. And the fact that we still see this by the very people who would so happily cite, cite Martin Luther King all the time, it's just, I mean, it's just exhausting. But I don't expect the debate, so-called debate, to end anytime soon.
0: You're listening to Yana Passaran on 3CR, 855am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR digital on your dab radio. We're currently talking to Natasha Lennard about non-fascist life. Speaking of Trump's inauguration, uh, you mentioned that you didn't get in trouble, but you very, very almost did as, uh, hundreds of, uh, people did that day. Uh, what can, do you think can be learnt from the policing of Trump's inauguration? And I suppose what you might call the, uh, the mirror event to that the uh, January 6th of this year.
1: So I think what it, it's I mean, what they were out on the day, the exact days themselves, they were obviously treated as very different events. So on January 20th, 2017, Trump's inauguration, riot cops were absolutely at the ready to mass arrest and catch grab and and, you know, aggressively repress any, any sort of action that day. And the, the black block, the anti fascist block that marched that day, you had broke, broke some bank windows and some Starbucks windows. 300 people plus were mass arrested, faced huge federal charges. Obviously, um, during January the 6th, there were very, very few on-site arrests, despite the fact that the Capitol building was under siege. Uh, you know, I'd never seen anything like it in my life. But, you know, obviously, since then, there have been a huge amount of arrests and people are facing major charges. So the the, the treatment is necessary, is certainly different. But it's not that uh, the January 6th rioters aren't facing any uh, anything of severity. But... That's got to be put in a broader context of white nationalists, white supremacists being, again and again, shown to be even by you know documents, even in documents of federal law enforcement, affirmed again and again to be the most deadly extremist threat in the U.S. by far, and yet so much effort has been made in the last year to try and focus uh, politics, uh, law enforcement interest, and investigation into anti-fascism and uh, black liberation struggle. And so I think the treatment of January 6th rioters is probably the most, you know, that's the most hardcore we've seen in terms of a law enforcement response to something that widespread, but they literally sieged the Capitol building. And, you know, it's not, I don't think they're evil because they sieged the Capitol building. I think they're evil because they're right-wing white nationalists who want a white hair-invoke democracy with Trump at its head. I'm not particularly against people breaching. I mean, many, many people would disagree with me on this. There are types of protest strategy that do involve challenging this government space and breaking into government space and occupying it. You know, there's grand histories of that being done for really wonderful reasons. I uh, detest the Capitol... Hill protesters not because they broke the law, but because they did it in the name of fascism.
2: Speaking of uh, fascism again, um, there's a number of ghosts which uh, populate your text. And one of them that I'd like to address is you describe fascism as a kind of uh, latent tendency uh, which can emerge in different moments and can be expressed by individuals and groups and movements, something worth paying attention to. Do you think that we're all kind of haunted by the prospect of uh, becoming fascists? And how does that enter into an everyday practice of anti-fascism?
1: Right. So the the way I talk about that that question in the book very much relies upon the work of Deleuze and Guattari, who were a psychoanalyst and philosopher duo who wrote about alongside Michel Foucault who wrote about these kind of concepts of Fascism permeating daily life under capitalism. Foucault dubbed it micro-fascisms. And so, you know, under the current conditions under which we live, there are many, many drives and desirous spaces around domination, othering, power, cruelty, the the kind of undergirding tendencies of fascism, the kind of authoritarian drives that uh, certainly engendered and fostered under capitalism. You know, Bertolt Brecht made the point that anyone who would condemn fascism without condemning the capitalism that birthed it is like, and I'm butchering the quote, so this isn't a quote. It's a its a vague reference to what he said. is like the meat eater who doesn't want to see the animal killed, but kind of ignore the process behind it. So I think under capitalism, there are all these drives that are kind of proto-fascistic, but that doesn't mean everyone is equally sitting around ready to become an active neo-Nazi or white supremacist, obviously, uh, first of all, depending on what kind of privilege you have and what kind of historical historic oppression you have lived through and uh, come from, the tendency to oppress and maintain fascistic or fascioid relations in the world are obviously different. But the point I think that I wanted to make there was to really rupture... What was happening a lot under Trump and still hasn't gone away, this idea of like, is it fascism now? Is it not fascism? And the only is Trump bringing fascism? And the only notion of fascism we had in that discourse seemed to be how similar Trump and Trumpism was to, you know, Hitler and Mussolini, which ignored so much, you know, excellent 20th century and 21st century thought about, different modes of fascism uh, in current society, and it not just being this kind of regime of the early mid 20th century that was felled and could return. It's spectral and actual in many, many ways. And I think part of what is important in the US context, too, is that it wasn't just European theorists, like the ones I've Noted who were making this point about fascism not being an aberration of but continuous with modernity and indeed liberal democracy is are uh, you know the black panthers and writers within writers and thinkers and activists and liberation fighters within the black radical tradition who you know made were like absolutely clear and unambiguous that the american carceral state, the history of settler colonialism, the crushing of post-reconstruction, the Jim Crow laws, these were all in uh, fascisms that we could see as, even though the term didn't exist at the time, but now we have it available and it's meaningful, we can see that very endogenous to America style of uh, anti-black fascism, largely uh, oriented around anti-black Racist fascisms. You know, Angela Davis was clear when she called the police state fascist. There were anti fascist organizing committees that the Panthers and the Rainbow Coalition helped put together. But we sort of lose that in this history, in this discourse. We lose that history in a discourse that's like, is Trump a fascist? Is he like Mussolini? Are we saved from fascism now? So I just think paying attention to A, those histories and the specific anti-Black fascisms of, uh, which apply to other racist fascisms in the US too. But then also, you know, how does that make sense that it isn't just a regime? What are we talking about? We are talking about domination, othering, caging, territorial removal, expulsion, expropriation, these kind of things that happen under liberal democracy all the time. And we should be ready to see the fascisms in them.
2: Natasha, one of the other tensions you identify in your book is that between the importance of state recognition in various political struggles and the need to escape that framing. This is uh, especially from a, I guess, an anarchist or anti-status uh, perspective. So, on the one hand, there's a there's a kind of struggle around uh, the extension of legal rights to a whole range of different bodies and and recognition within the law at the same time, there's some sense in which, uh, you know, uh, from a uh, radical or revolutionary perspective, that can be understood or configured as a kind of trap. So I'm wondering if you can uh, further elaborate on what you think are the tensions between recognition and uh, liberation.
1: Absolutely. So I think in the state we live now, the the state of affairs in which we currently live, the Body, the authority, the authority that can grant liberties and rights or withhold them, for the most part, is is the the Western, modelled after the Western nation state, and all the violences that that entails. But you know, what kind of privilege does it require to say, oh, you know, I I don't like that, so their recognition means nothing to me, and I don't have to live through that. You know, any person who is a fleeing persecution, trying to live in a different country, applying for asylum, just applying to immigrate. I emigrated to the US, certainly from from Britain, huge point of privilege, but had to be rec- had to have my former marriage recognized by the state to stay here. So I think this idea that it's, it's this um, unavoidable thing and to not take it seriously and fight for it to be expansive and as Generous as possible, would throw just far too many people and struggles um and lives under the bus it was Hannah Arendt is by no means my favorite philosopher, But when she talked about the refugee as that figure that realizes that we can talk about rights, but what about the right to have rights? How do you start talking about rights when you are not seen as a, a figure who is rights bearing? um and and you know what intervenes with that is this idea of uh, a given state or an international conglomeration of states recognizing you as someone who has the right to have rights but those rights will ever only ever be recognized through nation state authority and that's obviously a problem for those of us who see borders as essentially a, a violence and a kind of method for capital and uh, nothing to do with the flourishing and subsistence of human and non-human life and this idea of uh, living with the land as opposed to segmenting each other and uh, allowing all forms of violence that that borders um, entail so you kind of have but it, like so much of lived political struggle you have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time and it doesn't do much good to say I'm no board I'm I'm anti borders, which I am, so I'm not going to appeal to the government to uh less or at least challenge the government in as much as many ways possible to shift and lessen the violences at the border because I don't believe in borders. that's like someone saying they're post racial What nonsense we have to deal in the material realities in which we live, and that those obviously shape the the terrain of struggle but And yeah, and it's also very, very difficult given how, you know, how entrenched it is as a way of thinking about rights having, liberties having, societal organization, the demos. What does it mean to say, oh, I want a non-exclusionary type of living, but still a way of being the people, a demos um, how is that bounded? How is it not? And these are really difficult and unanswered questions. Uh, wendy Brown brings them up very well. I think the philosopher wendy brown and i don 't have the answers obviously, but i don 't think just because we haven 't figured it out yet and we 've got an entrenched circumstance that we should foreclose those horizons whilst struggling within and against nation state models and fighting to have you know there are i some of my best friends uh, are you know, happy socialists who, you know, they all they want is just a really, really good set of states. And I don't know how that that then applies when we realize that there is an essential need, I think, to undo the fact of borders. But these are all very big challenges that I think we have to be able to think about at once and not foreclose thinking of one because the other has an urgency to it. In in
2: that context, there's so well reemerged, I think, a, a tendency on the left, which does actually identify with the pressing necessity for strong borders and justifies that in terms of the protections it affords workers in particular and uh, working class people constituted through the nation, which in turn leads into or seems to reinforce various debates about uh, this notion that on the one hand you have a class politics and on the other hand you have an identity politics. Um, I'm wondering if you can speak to, because I find that conversation generally pretty unhelpful. But what do you think about this kind of notion that the state can and leftists should devote their energies to uh, promoting some kinds of borders at least and do so in the name of uh, protecting workers' conditions and so on? And secondly, what do you think it says about this particular conception of class politics that also often at the same time quite explicitly uh, positions itself against something else that's termed identity politics into which a whole range of different issues are kind of um, shoved. I mean, I find that kind of framing, you know, um, unhelpful. I'm wondering what you think about
1: it. Oh, yeah. OK, so to the latter first, I find that I find the, the debate nightmarish, but I understand why it keeps happening. So, in terms of uh, it's this kind of class reductionist versus id poll tension, uh, which I don't think needs to be attention, and I think uh, you know there are some pretty bad faith actors who insist that that it needs to be. First of all, any understanding of of capitalism should understand it as situated and historically irremovably so, not as a logical Marxian notion, as a material fact of how capitalism came to be in this actual world because we don't live in another world. It is rightly, as Cedric Robinson described it, racial capitalism, situated on certain types of racial domination, land expropriation, and exploitation that is unavoidable and can't be undone just because people would like to have a sort of sense of class purity that transcends that. Does that mean that powerful corporations, capitalists, People we want to see undone in the most uh, expansive ways have not taken advantage of the terms of various feminist and anti racist liberation struggles. Yes, they certainly have. I'm not sure what that uh, has to do with it, aside from the fact that we shouldn't, we should be wary of that and not let that be definitive of black liberation struggle. Obviously, race and class have to be considered together, and pretty vigorously so, and with nuance depending where in the world you are. But I, so I, f- I find the class reductionism very annoying. I think it's full of straw men, you know, as soon as the CIA do something pointing to um, supporting people of colour, supporting women, Israel pinkwashing, everyone's like, see, see, these liberation struggles are just built for co-optation by the powers that be like nothing is built for co-optation things are co-opted and we have to struggle over it this no one said this was going to be easy and you know and so we do have to keep class class struggle in front of our minds and but not not lose you know just not lose the basic historical materialist understanding that class segmentation is also situated in uh racial domination and and indeed misogyny. So then that applies similarly to borders. It almost shocks me more when you see border controls and, you know, the alleged left case for strong borders come up because people then, a lot of the advocates for this, Nagel included, will say things like, it serves capital. It serves capital to have loose borders. And That is, it's so dehumanizing, because it's suggesting that we wouldn't want to challenge capitalism and allow the movement of people, but not the movement of capital. And indeed, borders are capital's method of labor segmentation to allow neoliberalization. And we see that all around the world. And so the people who are like, it's neoliberal to want open borders, I'm like, no, 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 borders enable neoliberalization if you actually know what the word neoliberal means. So that's always just sort of baffling to me and how stupid it is. And um, it also just speaks to who people think the working class is and which many millions of the working class people are willing to throw under the bus because of their mythic ideas of who it should be. And so all the undocumented people who work in the ever-growing care industries. In this country, are, are they not appropriately working class enough? And in what way will closed borders protect them? It hasn't so far. So I think we have to keep keep firm in knowing that our enemies are not other aspects of the working class because they come from different countries, and that indeed it serves capital for to act as if that were so, and it always has. And I understand how. These ideologies have come into being, and how they can actually be very enticing. And that sort of that sort of framework and that sort of tendency undergirded horrors in U.S. history, like the Chinese Exclusion Act. But I think you'll find that uh, the working class was not protected through those kind of brutalities against uh, non-white working class people. So you know, if if I if I hear someone. Who doesn't seem to who doesn't who doesn't know those histories or doesn't understand how uh, borders work for capital, not against it? Of course, I'm happy as we all should be to explain that. But if it's someone talking in bad faith, as a kind of willful uh, neglect of understanding how capital works and that the movement of capital across borders uh, should be challenged, the movement of people should not. Then I just think it's it's lazy and uh, racist.
2: Finally, Natasha, one thing I noted in, in reading your book is the concept of uh, necropolitics is uh, employed at various points. I'm wondering if you can just uh, explain to the listeners what that means and also how does it contrast with or what's the relationship between you know, a politics of death and a non-fascist life?
1: Right. So I did not make up the term necropolitics. The philosopher Achille Mbembe did. And what it means is it's a, a kind of challenge to an expansion on Foucault's uh, notion of biopolitics, which is we move away from understanding as the sovereign of just, you know, the king who decides who lives, who dies, but governance as uh, the management of life. And Mbembe says what that misses, especially in colonized, you know, formally colonized and colonize parts of the world is, is the, the governance that relies on keeping people in bare life and proximity to death and readily bed and made available to death. And I think the, you, you see the way that that's so fiercely been the case and has been kind of the ordering of, of the ordering regime in which we currently live when you look at who was let, like forced to work and let to die. In the pandemic, and that's just the kind of most a very kind of clear example for people who weren't, you know, necessarily paying attention beforehand. So when we think of th- things being necropolitical as opposed to biopolitical, it's not just about the management of life; it's an orientation to who can be driven to this kind of zombie state of of, of near death, colonized near death, slavery, and indeed death. So the the refugee uh, trying to cross the Mediterranean in a dinghy. When people are popping across that same stretch of water perfectly safely in uh, yachts, for example, you know that's a that's a necropolitical order. These aren't these. This isn't about the management of life. This is about uh, the readiness to let death be the the kind of way in which people are the the exposure to death being an acceptable way to uh, enforce people's lives to be lived. Oh, and what, what was the second question? <laughs> the rela- the sorry. Question? Um-
2: how you would uh, place this concept in terms of you know evoking some na- uh, notion of a, a non-fascist life?
1: Well, I think it's definitely, there is something incredibly fascist about a kind of uh, an ordering regime in which many people, peoples because of racial capitalism and trans misogyny and other forms of violent hierarchy are forced into states of, near death or let to die, that to me is a a fascist order uh, full of everyday fascisms and really quite formal fascisms, the kind of formal fascisms of a a zero tolerance border and mass incarceration and, you know, refusal to let people not die in dinghies trying to get to land and countries that can well manage their presence and indeed benefit from it. So I think uh, non-fascism and indeed uh, yeah, anti-fascism in a very active sense has to look at the points of necropolitical governance's most violent and everyday violent uh, appearances and work against them and see what structures that we maybe don't notice, ensure that those are continued, for example normalizing borders as somehow transhistorical and the n- modern nation state is somehow uh, the only possible way we could organize ourselves as peoples and a people with non-human life too. So uh, yeah, I think there's a, to understand that we live under and through a lot of necropolitical systems is crucial to trying to undo any fascisms, be they more formal and regime-like or everyday.
0: Well, let's leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us, Natasha. People can find your work at The Intercept on Twitter, at Natasha Leonard. And, of course, the book is Being Numerous and is out through Verso. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, Andy, that's all we've got time for. Global Indifada is up next. We'll catch you next week. See you later. All I do- Your support during our annual Radiothon and be part of Community Powered Radio. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June
2: 2021. To donate, call 03 9419 or donate
0: online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon, Community Powered Radio. <laughs>